Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Good morning. It is good to be together this Lord's Day. We are thankful for the good number that we have with us this morning. We are especially grateful for those who might be visiting with us. We are uh, hope that you can stick around and get to visit with us after services are over, but we're certainly grateful for your interest in spiritual things. We're thankful that you've decided to come our way to worship God with us this Lord's Day morning. In our reading that we just heard in Romans chapter 10, Paul makes it very clear when he's talking about our salvation and our confession. He says that there is a link between what is in our heart and what we believe and with what we profess and what we say. He makes that very clear when he says in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul makes it very clear that our confession, what we say, the words that we might profess to believe, that they are integral in our part of becoming a Christian. That when we make the confession that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was raised from the dead, those are not small words. That's not just a phrase that we can use to roll off the tongue. But that is something that is deeply embedded into our heart and what we believe about what God has done through Jesus Christ in raising Him from the dead. And that is the pathway to becoming a child of God and a Christian. He makes it very clear that as he goes on in verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now when we confess Jesus as Lord, He tells us that we result, it results in righteousness, in our right standing before God. It results in our salvation. But as you continue to think about confessing Jesus and confessing Him as Lord and as our Savior, confessing Christ is also part of choosing Christ. Choosing to follow after Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, in Matthew the 10th chapter, and in verses 32 and 33, notice what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 32 and 33 as He's talking about following Him, being a disciple, choosing to follow after Him. It says, Therefore everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess Him before My Father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus makes it very clear that when we confess Him, that we are choosing Him. We are choosing to follow Him. We're choosing to be recognized with Him. And He is also choosing us as well. I think that's a very humbling thought. That Jesus is choosing to recognize and be associated with us when we confess Him. But if we deny Him, then He is going to deny us as well. But we are choosing to follow Jesus. We're choosing to side ourselves with Christ when we make the confession, the great confession that Jesus is the Son of God. When we might utter those words before we become a child of God, or even after we are asked, after we have become a Christian, if we are asked, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And you say, yes, I do. When we confess Jesus, we are choosing sides. We're choosing to follow Christ. And then something else about confessing Christ is that as we know, our life, throughout our life, we are going to be battle tested. And I think many times as Christians, we struggle in this fight. Sometimes we are also eager to begin our walk with Christ and yet that allegiance, when it is tested, we might begin to waver sometimes. We might lose the zeal that we once had initially. And the Hebrew writer begins to address this very issue, and he goes back to the beginning point when we verbalized our belief in Christ. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 1, Notice what the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's saying, remember Jesus. The confession that you made about Christ. You need to go back and you need to remember that. You need to reflect upon that. I think sometimes we have a very minimalistic view of confession. And that when we say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who was raised on the third day for for our sins and for our hope of eternal life, sometimes we just feel like that's saying, yep, check that off, I believe that. But a Hebrew writer, he's saying, I want you to remember Jesus I want you to think back about that confession that you once made. If you're a Christian and you have made that confession before people, I want you to think back when you made that confession. I want you to think back this morning and think about what it is that you were confessing and some of the implications associated with it. Because the Hebrew writer says that we need to remember Jesus. That confession is about Christ and who He is. The Apostle and High Priest of our confession. He goes on in verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That the confession that we made, we are supposed to live in accordance with that confession the rest of our life, firm until the end. He goes on in verse 14. 
For if for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That when we began to make that confession of who Jesus is, and when we acknowledged and chose sides and put our allegiance with Christ, that was the beginning and we are supposed to remain firm until the end. He goes on in chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The language of holding fast, being firm until the end, it's language that is associated with military language. It's very militant here, and what the Hebrew writer is saying is that you do not retreat. That you've made a choice. You've chosen a side. You've chosen to follow Jesus. Do not turn back. Do not turn astray. You keep on persevering and you keep on fighting. And so when we think about our confession, I think just these three points right here ought to be sufficient to help us understand that when we speak about confession, we are speaking about something that is extremely important. When we talk about, if we confess Jesus Christ before others, this is going to be part of becoming a Christian. It's choosing our side to be on the side of Christ, and Christ is also choosing us. And then it is something that we need to remain firm until the end to hold fast to that confession. But this morning I want us to look at three different passages of Scripture that we see where people made the confession of who Jesus was in recognizing His identity as the Messiah as the Christ and the Son of God. And I want us to look at these three instances, and I want us to draw some lessons from those instances that might help us think more deeply about what we believe when we say we confess Christ. When we say and we acknowledge that we believe in Jesus. What are we saying? What do we believe? What are we accepting? And what are the implications behind such a statement and confession of faith. And so this morning, I hope that you will turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 16, a passage that I'm sure you probably began to think about whenever I mentioned the confession that others have made in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 13, Jesus is with His disciples. They are in and around the area of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus begins asking His disciples some questions. Who do people say that I am? He wants to know what people think. The people very generally, very broadly. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He asks His disciples. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. And so the, the answer is very mixed. But then Jesus begins to change the question. In verse 15 of Matthew chapter 16, in verse 15, Jesus said to them, 
But who do you say that I am? Okay, so I asked who do people think that I am, but now I want to really know who do you think that I am? And in verse 16, Peter is the one who speaks up on behalf of the apostles. And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a bold statement and a bold confession that Peter made that day. And it is based upon that confession that Jesus begins to issue a blessing to Peter. He says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Then the rock that Jesus was going to build upon was not Peter. Peter was not going to be the rock. But Peter and the confession that Peter made was going to be the rock and the foundation of Christ's church. And so what we begin to see is that whenever Peter confessed Christ, and when we confess Christ, I think we are beginning to recognize Christ's authority within the church. It's something that is so foundational, so basic, and so important that we can sometimes overlook it, sadly. But when we say that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when we might utter those words, we are accepting that Jesus is the one who has all authority, that He is the head of the church, that Christ, He says, that I will build my church, that He is the one who owns the church, and it has great power and great authority that even the gates of Hades will not be able to overpower it, that the church that Jesus was going to build was going to outlast any rule or authority. You think about what the Scriptures reveal about the church and Christ's relationship with the church. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1. Notice how Paul begins to describe the church in Ephesians chapter 1 and in, at the end of that chapter as he is talking about Christ and how God has set Him at His right hand. In verse 20, it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That Christ is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. He rules and He has demonstrated His power and His authority over the church. And everything is to be in subjection to Christ. And it's so important for us to just stop and appreciate what that means. 
that Jesus is the one who rules. He is the one who sets His law. He is the one who is reigning as King. And we are His subjects. We are the citizens of the kingdom. And whenever we confess Christ, we are acknowledging His authority and we are recognizing our place to submit to His authority. That Jesus has been placed at the right hand of power in which He is ruling. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul would say there is one body, there is one church that Christ rules over. In chapter 5 and verse 23, the language of the body again comes up. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He Himself being the Savior of the body. That Christ gave His life to save us. And earlier in chapter 2 of Ephesians, in verse 20, it says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Jesus and His identity, who He is, is the foundation of the church of Christ. When we identify ourselves as the church of Christ, we're not adhering to some denominational title or name. We are recognizing Christ and His position of authority. We're recognizing His ownership and that we are His church. We are His people. And that we are subject to Him. And it's sad whenever people think that they can separate Christ from the church. People might suggest that, well, we need to preach more about Christ and less about the church. You can't do that. You can't preach about the head without preaching about the body. You can't teach about the Savior and not teach about the saved and the people that Christ gave His life for. The church is the collected, called out people from the world. While it is not the church that saves, we have to be part of the church of Christ for which He died. We must recognize the benefit of the Lord's church and the Lord's body. It's also a sad thing whenever people think that they can be a Christian without the church. That, well, I can just do religion on my own. I can do things at my own time or at my own place, at my house. I don't need collective, organized Christianity. I don't need to be a member of a local church. It's sad that whenever people have those kinds of ideas, because what you see throughout Scripture is the fundamental truth that we need each other. We need to exhort and encourage each other. We need to be part of one another and sharing each other's lives. Paul would write in the book of Romans that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That involves a community. That involves knowing each other. The church is critical 
to our life as a child of God. And it is something that we recognize even when we make that initial step to become a Christian. When we say we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we are accepting His role and His position and His authority over the church and we are recognizing that we are going to become a part of the church. When we confess Christ as the Son of God, we are confessing that He is the head of the church, that He's the foundation of the church, and that He has all authority in the church and that we are going to be part of that body and submit to Him and obey Him. That's one of the lessons that we learn from Matthew chapter 16. Then a second lesson that we learn is found in John the 11th chapter. Another important moment when we see another person confess Jesus. Confessing their faith in who Jesus is. In John chapter 11, you'll remember that this chapter is the great chapter where Jesus performs a great miracle in raising Lazarus from the dead. And what is so fascinating about that miracle is really all of the chapter and all the things that lead up to those events. In John chapter 11, they, Jesus hears at the very beginning of the chapter that Lazarus was sick and was likely going to die. And Jesus delays coming to see Lazarus because He knew that this was going to bring about God's glory. And so as you continue to read in John chapter 11, Jesus eventually comes to see Lazarus, but Lazarus has already died. And Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary, come out to see Jesus. And Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sounds a little accusatory there, doesn't it? Jesus, if you had just been a few days earlier, then Lazarus would still be here. And so this is partially your fault. And so Jesus begins to converse with her. And says in verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. She seems to scoff a little bit. Not at the idea of resurrection, but that that is going to be of any kind of comfort to her. That yes, I know he's going to rise again, Jesus. But that doesn't help me right here and right now in the pain and the anguish that I feel of just having lost my brother. Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
And she said, yes, to him. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. As Jesus had been making the bold claim that I am the resurrection and the life, that if you want to have eternal life, it begins with believing in Jesus. And Jesus asked her, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? And Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Martha is willing to confess that. And as you continue on throughout the chapter in verse 35, Jesus weeps. And He eventually will tell Lazarus to come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. Lazarus was raised to prove a point. That Jesus has power over life and over death. That Jesus can command even those who are in the grave to obey Him. And Martha, in her confession, acknowledges that. Fundamental truth. That Jesus has great power. That He is the source of eternal life and He is the one who will give victory over the grave. In John chapter 5, earlier in the chapter, a few just a few chapters earlier, in John the fifth chapter, and in verses 28 and 29, Jesus talked about at the end when the judgment comes. In John chapter 5, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus said that all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And they will come forth. They will be raised. Think about what Paul would write about in the book of 1 Corinthians of the 15th chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verses 3 and 4, he talks about the importance and the significance of Jesus' own resurrection from the dead and what that means for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Remember in Romans chapter 10, in the passage that we began with this morning, in Romans chapter 10 and in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That the resurrection is implicit in our confessing Jesus. Not only His confession or His resurrection, 
but our own future resurrection. Something that Jesus fundamentally believed and that He set Martha up to help her understand and help all those who witnessed raising Lazarus from the dead. Help all of them recognize Jesus' power and authority over the grave. And when we confess Christ, we are also acknowledging Jesus' authority over the grave. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 20, Paul would go on to talk about, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. That Christ, yes, He was raised, but He was raised first. He is of the firstfruits of the harvest but that He was the first. And so, if you get a harvest of corn, the first fruits that are going to come, you would anticipate the latter harvest, the latter fruits to be of the same kind and same in nature as the first. You're not going to get watermelon later on from the corn seed. And it's going to be the same in kind. And so just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will we be raised from the dead is the point. He goes on in verse 21, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ and His coming. That Christ has been raised to prove a point. That God and Christ have victory over sin and over death. And the grave is not going to be the final victor. We will be raised victorious at Christ's coming. Our bodies are not going to be left in the grave. Death will not have victory over any part of us, spiritually or physically. We will be raised when Christ returns. He goes on at the end of the chapter in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul is trying to get us to see that corrupted flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must be changed. We must be changed immortal, incorruptible, imperishable. And when we confess Christ, we are anticipating our own victory over sin and over death. And when we confess Jesus as having been raised from the dead on the third day, we are acknowledging and believing that fact, and we're also beginning to anticipate what, Christ, what happened to Christ is also going to happen to us. He says in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? 
O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we acknowledge Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, who was raised from the dead, we are anticipating our own victory over the grave. Just as when Martha was asked, do you believe this? When Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. When Jesus says, I am the source of eternal life. When Jesus told her that I am the one who has power over the grave and over death. Lazarus, come forth. Do you believe in your own future resurrection? That's something that is implicit whenever we make the good confession of Jesus as the Christ. And one final passage for us to consider this morning is found in the book of Acts in the 8th chapter. In Acts chapter 8, you will remember the story of Ethiopian eunuch and Philip who began preaching to him. And in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 37, as Philip had been preaching Jesus to him, they came to some water and the eunuch had asked, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says in verse 37, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. A third confession that we see this morning. And what you see obviously linked here with this confession is Jesus' identity with faith and baptism. Philip had begun preaching Jesus as the eunuch had been reading from Isaiah chapter 53, reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He needed some help in understanding what that passage and prophecy was about. And it says in verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And the man began to believe. And he was willing to make the confession of who Jesus is. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is my Savior. The eunuch was willing to believe that. And he was willing to confess that. And he was willing to go down into the waters of baptism. It says in verse 38, And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. 
What I love about that is the open-ended aspect of the eunuch's life. We're not told what happened to him after that day. But I can just imagine in my mind a man who had come to realize the guilt of his sin and why Jesus went to the cross after reading Isaiah chapter 53. That he came to be humbled that Jesus would die for him. And he wanted to enjoy the forgiveness of his sins. He wanted to have his sins washed away. And he was eager to do so. And so whenever he asked, what prevents me from being baptized, he wasn't going to allow anything to prevent it. He wanted to know what prevented him so he could resolve that. So when he was said, told to, that you must believe with your heart, he was willing to do it. He was willing to confess Jesus as the Christ. And then he was ready to go to the waters of baptism. And from there on out, the picture that we have of the eunuch is this man who is rejoicing because of his sins being washed away, his sins being removed, and God no longer remembering those sins and holding them against him any longer. What a beautiful picture. We don't know how long the eunuch might have lived, but that's the last picture that we have in our mind as we read about him in Scripture. Is this man who remembered the joy Of salvation. And what you see that Philip told the eunuch is that there is something that is connected with baptism. He's re- the eunuch is ready to be baptized. And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, that he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Jesus, and what Philip recognized is that for anyone who is going to be baptized, they first must believe. They must first believe in Jesus as your Savior. As the one who went to the cross and died for you. And then you think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 10 where we began our study this morning. In Romans chapter 10, and in verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is a link between 
what we believe with our heart and what we say with our mouth. And when we confess Christ, we are recognizing Him as the One who died for us. We are recognizing Him as our Savior. Confessing Christ is not one of the last things that you do to just check off a list to become a Christian. The eunuch shows us that there is still yet another step that we must take. We must be baptized into Christ. But what is preventing you from being baptized into Christ this morning? Is it unbelief? Is it doubt? Is it the shame and stigma of sin? Have you bought into the lie that I have all the time in the world, I can just do it later when I get older? Is it embarrassment? What prevents you this morning from becoming a Christian and from being baptized? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you have reached an accountable age where you know what sin is and that you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that you're going to have to give an account on the day of judgment before Christ, will you not come this morning in faith and obedience to the Gospel, confess Christ before this audience that you believe Him to be the One who died for you and your Savior and be baptized in water to have your sins washed away. Don't let hold anything back from believing in Jesus and confessing Him and being baptized today. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?